we say it every Sunday, but you mind taking out your Bibles, please, and turning to Galatians. We're about five or six weeks into this series in Galatians, if you haven't been with us. And uh, if you don't know how to find it in the Bible, it's about four-fifths of the way back. And uh, Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, those letters there. And if you didn't bring a Bible, we have black ones in, in, the, in the seat rack in front of you. You can find them right there. If you open that up and turn to page 812, you'll be right where we're going to look today. We're going to study Galatians 4, 8 through 31. We're going to talk about being children of promise instead of being children of performance. And I hope that, again, this message is helpful to you as it's been to me. It's just really good to be able to study. But I want to make sure I give one disclaimer. There's a lot of tricky stuff in here. So it'll involve us just really engaging, and I'll try and make it as... uh, as uh, delightful of an experience as possible while we're learning all this stuff. So anyway, let me just uh, start by saying, if you're following along in the notes, that Paul writes this letter that we're going to study more of today. Paul writes, the, writes to these believers to oppose a lie they believe. Paul writes this whole letter of Galatians to these Galatian believers to oppose a lie that they believe. And what's the lie? Well, again, just to recap the story, Galatians is a letter that Paul wrote after he had founded churches in the Roman province of Galatia. That's up north and to the west of where Jerusalem was. He traveled up there. These people had never had Sunday school or parochial school or catechism or CCD, any of that stuff. They had no Bible background. They came from a completely pagan worldview. And now Paul shows up on the scene And he tells them that there's a God who sent his one and only son, Jesus, that they can know and they can have a relationship with him. And he tells them the gospel. And we learned the first week that the gospel, in a nutshell, is trusting in Christ plus nothing. Trusting in what Christ has done plus nothing that I do. That's how we come into a relationship with God. But because he was only with them for a few weeks after he left, eventually there would be a group of people called Judaizers that would come up from Jerusalem, chapter 2, verse 12, that would come up and begin to disturb and disrupt them and teach them that no, no, even though you've trusted Christ, that only gets you halfway there. You're only a half convert. You're only a half child of God. There's still a lot for you to do to make up that gap. And they began teaching another gospel, which Paul said is no gospel at all. It's not really good news. And that is Christ plus anything else. Christ plus, now you need to also become Jewish. So these Jewish Christians said, Jesus is great. Yeah, we're into Jesus too, but you also need to become a full-fledged Jewish person so you can be a true child of Abraham. You've got to follow Moses. You've got to obey all the ceremonial laws, dietary laws, and all this stuff, and basically put back on them this yoke of all kinds of performance, spiritual religion. And uh, what's worse is they kind of liked it. They were attracted to it. And Paul now realizes, oh my gosh, they are getting so confused about their identity. So last week we saw that throughout Galatians, he keeps trying to say, look, remember who you already are if you've trusted in Christ. It's not true what they're saying. You're not a half convert. He made you fully his child. He made you a full inheritor of everything that Jesus Christ accomplished on the cross. Don't settle for those lies. Don't go for that. But now put yourself in Paul's shoes. When he hears that these false teachers, these Judaizers, who tried to mix Jesus and Judaism, were teaching this lie, just put yourself in his shoes. He helped them 
come to Christ and know Christ, you watch the miracle of them being born again and be part of that joy. He wants to get on a plane when he hears this, right? There's one problem. No plane. I mean, think about it. If you know of somebody that's getting sidetracked, getting wayward, getting confused, isn't everything in you want to get, get to them as quick as you can? Be face to face. But he can't do that. He can't even text them. He can't email them. All he can do is write a letter, and that's going to take a while to get to him too. So as he writes this letter, he prays for them. He cares about them because he realizes this isn't about them liking him. This is about their relationship with Jesus Christ being on the rocks. So if you're following along, I want you to see that in this first section we'll be reading, like there's 24 verses we're going to look at today, but the first 13 we'll cover quickly. I want you to see that in those 13 verses that we see this truth. In no other letter, he calls them my dear children. My dear children. Some of you, if you've ever read 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John in the New Testament, then you see John, who used to travel with Jesus as one of the fishermen, he uses this phrase, my dear children, promiscuously. But Paul, he only uses it once in all his letters, and it's right here. And I believe it's because he wants so badly to convey to him, hey, God is your father, I got a chance to be like a midwife in that whole process, but I care about you. You're not just anybody to me, you're family to me. My dear children and he pleads with them, and you're going to feel the force of that. And really, this whole section of 24 verses, if I could just sum up the big idea in all 24 verses, it's going to talk a lot about children, childbirth, that whole process of spiritual birth and spiritual childbirth. That's really the big theme, the thread through it all. And so if you're paying attention to the notes there and following along, then here's what I want you to see in that third line. This is why Paul is so upset. This is why he's ticked about the Galatians believing this lie and these Judaizers teaching them this lie is because he knows that the way we relate to God shapes what our lives give birth to. The way that we relate to God shapes what our lives give, quotation marks, birth to. Some of you are men say, I don't do babies. Yeah, I know that. But you still are into producing creating, making things happen. Men and women, we all are. It's our nature to want to make things happen. And when we relate to God the wrong way, we will give birth. We will make some things happen. But it'll be different than what happens when we relate to God rightly. When we relate to God as children of performance, it's completely different than when we relate to God as children of promise. And that's what this passage is going to tell us about. So I want to read verses 8 through 20 here, and I want to ask you to be ready to read verses 19 and 20 that are listed in that first gray box. We'll read it all together out loud, but let me read it, and then I want to just kind of summarize what Paul's doing here. So would you read it with me? Follow along. Formerly, when you did not know God, you were slaves to those who by nature are not gods. He's saying you used to be slaves. That was your identity. But now that you know God, or rather are known by God, how is it that you are turning back to those weak and miserable forces? Do you wish to be enslaved by them all over again? I mean, now you're observing special days and months and seasons and years. You're doing all this outward performing stuff. I fear for you that somehow I have wasted my efforts on you. I'm afraid that all the time we had together is going to turn out to go nowhere. 
I plead with you. Do you feel that phrase? I plead with you, brothers and sisters, become like me, for I became like you. We talked about this a couple weeks ago. Paul had been Jewish. He was Jewish by birth, but he also had been a Jewish rabbi. Jewish people were taught, even in Jesus' day, not to hang out with Gentiles. The Galatians were Gentiles. You all remember what a Gentile is, if you've been with us? Gentile is anyone who's not Jewish. And so now he's saying to them, look, I didn't let my being a Jewish heritage get in the way of me hanging out with you. I became like you. I became just like you as far as I was willing to be a Gentile so you might hear the good news of Christ. Now become like me by trusting in Christ and letting him set you free. You did me no wrong. As you know, verse 13, it was because of an illness that I first preached the gospel to you. Christ plus nothing. And even though my illness was a trial to you, you did not treat me with contempt or scorn. Instead, you welcomed me as if I were an angel of God, as if I were Christ Jesus himself. Where then is your blessing of me now? I can testify that if you could have done so, you would have torn out your eyes and given them to me. This is a way in those days of saying, you would have done anything for me. Have I now become your enemy by telling you the truth? Those people are zealous to win you over, but for no good. What he means by those people is what? These teachers, right? They're trying to talk you into another way of seeing yourself and living your life, relating to God. What they want is to alienate you from us so that you may have zeal for them. It is fine to be zealous, provided the purpose is good, and to be so always, not just when I am with you. Now would you read verse 19 and 20 with me out loud, please? My dear children, for whom I am again in the pains of childbirth until Christ is formed in you, how I wish I could be with you now and change my tone, because I am perplexed about you. Now, here we see that phrase, my dear children. And he says, I'm trying to think about how I explain to you how deeply I feel for you. I'm actually in a kind of pain as I wait to see how you respond and how God wants to work in your life. I want Christ to be formed in you. In a way, as he writes this letter, he's not saying, hey, I'm really ticked off because I'm so insecure that you're paying attention to other leaders. not saying that. He said, here's my concern about some leaders. Some leaders want you to be zealous for them and not for Christ. And he says, sincerely as I can say it, I want Christ to be formed in you, not me to be formed in you. I don't want me to be in your life as much as I want Christ to be in your life. Because that's God's whole goal, is that you wouldn't just meet Christ, but that Christ would become everything in you. He'd become part of you, formed in you, your life. When I was in high school, something happened to me. I think I've told you this story before, and I will probably tell you again. Because this story has marked me so deeply. But when I was in high school, I mentioned this before, that my dad moved us in my junior year, so I had about a year and a half I had to learn in a brand new school, brand new town. And uh, again, it was pretty unsettling for me. But as time went on, uh, I, I saw some new friendships form and things like that. And, so I was going to a new high school, new youth group, all this stuff. One day I was in, in the grocery store in that town, and um, I had a girl that was both part of the youth group and also part of the high school stop me, and she just, her name was Monica, and she said, Jeff, I just want to tell you something. I said, what is it, Monica? And she says, 
I just want to tell you how much I appreciate your dad and his preaching. I said, Monica, that's really encouraging for you to say that. Why do you appreciate my dad and his preaching? And she, she thought for a second and she said, it's because I feel loved from the pulpit. I remember thinking to myself, that's profound. When you and I have to challenge someone or correct someone, it makes all the difference if you feel loved. And so I found myself thinking about that, and I went home, still that on my mind. I walked down into our family room there in Elgin. My mom was ironing. And uh, I just said, Mom, why do you think so many people appreciate Dad so much? And she said, well, I think it's because he teaches people how to live the Christian life. And she went on to say, and he does it in real practical ways so that like, they can picture themselves actually living this life with Jesus. And I remember thinking to myself, oh, this is before I ever knew I would be a pastor, but I remember thinking, that's the way to do it. The Apostle Paul Help the Galatians know, and every person that will ever read this letter with an open heart, that he loves us. But even more importantly, he wants us to know that God loves us. And that he wants to help us learn how to live the Christian life. And friends, at its root, living the Christian life depends all in the way that we understand how to relate to God. And it, it all goes back to how we see our identity. Last week we saw that the Apostle Paul begins to teach them even more about how to live the Christian life by telling them, do you realize that when you trusted in Christ, you're adopted? You're his children. And not just adopted because he had to, adopted because he wanted you. He chose you. And I told about how when I was a young parent, I used to tuck my kids in bed. And with our sons, I'd tell them the whole long line of boys. And with my daughter, I'd tell her the whole long line of girls. And I'd always end by saying, if I could pick any other girl in the world, any other boy in the world, I'd pick you again to be my son, to be my daughter. And I, I didn't mention this in the other services, but still to this day, that truth is so profound that sometimes our kids will text us, P-Y-A, pick you again. And when you begin to know, and I begin to know, that by God's grace, in adoption, he says, I pick you. I choose you. I want you. I want a relationship with you. Even before you even knew I existed, even before you cared that I existed, I picked you. I pick you again. And when you and I begin to live in that kind of sense of identity, it changes us. When we realize that God loves us and cares about us and wants Christ to be formed in us, oh my goodness, what a sense of promise. You know, sometimes we'll talk about children or teenagers or young people and we'll go, they are so full of promise. <clears throat> what do we mean? There is so much that might be able to happen in their lives. There's so much waiting to unfold in their life. And guess what, friends? In Christ, if you've trusted him, you are a children, a child, excuse me, of promise. So the rest of the time we have here, Paul continues this whole discussion about childbirth, this whole way we relate to God. 
and it has to do with their identity. Remember I told you the Judaizers had come on the scene there in the Galatian churches and they were infecting these people with confusion about who they really were. They were making them second guess who they really were. They were going, look, we're Jewish Christians. We're true children of Abraham. You're Gentiles. Mm, sorry. So, but if you work really hard to bridge that gap, if your performance is exemplary, wow, you might be able to come true children of Abraham too. So the rest of this time, Paul says, I want to take that on. Because you need to understand something. Just like they're teaching in the Old Testament and you're getting acquainted with it, I want to teach you the Old Testament. That's what the Bible's sometimes called the law. Not just the laws, but the Old Testament, especially the first five books of the Bible, were called the law sometimes. And so he says, he starts in verse 21 with this whole different idea. Now here's what I want you to see. Don't let this freak you out. If you don't have a lot of Bible knowledge, don't let it freak you out. Even those of us that have some Bible knowledge, it's like, what? I mean, so it's going to be challenging for all of us, okay? There's five names, three places, but I'm going to try and make it understandable as best I can. So here's what I want to do. I want to pray, because if God shows you, you'll get it. If I try and show you, you may not. Okay, so let's pray. God. Thank you that people have carved out time to listen to your word. Now, Lord, I pray that you'll make it very fruitful and that you'll show them exactly what you want them to understand. I thank you that you promised that you would do this. In your name we pray. Amen. Okay, so uh, let's look at this passage, verse 21, and let's keep going here about talking about Abraham. So he says, tell me, you who want to be under the law, that's a way of saying that I want to place myself under the Old Testament law and become fully Jewish as well as trusting in Christ. Are you not aware of what the law, the Old Testament says? For it is written, and he's quoting now, he's basically reviewing Genesis 12 through chapter 21, but especially 16 and 21, in case you want to look at that later. He says, for it is written that Abraham had two sons, one by the slave woman and the other by the free woman. His son by the slave woman was born according to the flesh, but his son by the free woman was born as the result of a divine promise. Now these things are being taken figuratively. He's not saying interpret the Bible like this all the time because this didn't literally happen. He's saying I want to I take an allegory right now and I want to tie this together to your situation. The women represent two covenants. One covenant is from Mount Sinai. Does, does everyone know where Mount Sinai was? That's where... Moses was given the two tablets of the law, okay, Mount Sinai, and bears children who are to be slaves. This is Hagar. Now, Hagar stands for Mount Sinai in Arabia and corresponds to the present city of Jerusalem because she is in slavery with her children. Do you remember where the Judaizers came from? Which city? Jerusalem. So now what he's doing is he's saying, those people that are teaching you this, yeah, they're from Jerusalem, but they're from the, the Jerusalem here on earth that's in slavery, they're still trying to obey the Old Testament law. They still think it's all about Judaism without Christ. But the Jerusalem that is above, he's talking about heaven now, the new Jerusalem, the Revelation talks about, is free, and she is our mother. For it is written, now he quotes from the Old Testament, Isaiah 54, Be glad, barren woman, you who never bore a child, shout for joy and cry aloud, you who were never in labor, 
because more are the children of the desolate woman than of her who has, no, has a husband. Now let's read verse 28 together uh, from the same translation in the notes. Now you, brothers and sisters, like Isaac, are children of promise. You may want to circle the word now and the word are because it's present tense. Not you will be, not you might be able to someday be. Now you, brothers and sisters, like Isaac, are children of promise. Verse 29, at that time the son born according to the flesh persecuted the son born by the power of the spirit. It is the same now. But what does scripture say? Get rid of the slave woman and her son. This is quoting Genesis 21 now. For the slave woman's son will never share in the inheritance with the free woman's son. Therefore, brothers and sisters, we are not children of the slave woman, but of the free woman. Let us pray and be dismissed. This is loaded. This is loaded. Now again, let me just say something here. Some of you know that even in Jesus' day, when Jesus encountered these people, the Jewish people of that time took great pride that they were, by birth, children of Abraham. They were physical descendants of Abraham. And that became really their identity. So Paul says, okay, let's just talk about that. If these people are trying to get you to think like that, I want you to remember Abraham had two sons. Now, notice what John the Baptist does, because he encounters this same kind of proud spirit of being Jewish. Notice this, if you'll follow along in Matthew 3. Look at what he says. But when John the Baptist saw Pharisees and Sadducees, that means the religious Jewish leaders coming to watch him baptize, he denounced them. Now notice again how he wins friends and influences people. You brood of snakes, he exclaimed. Who warned you to flee God's coming wrath? Prove by the way that you live that you have repented. You've changed your mind of your sins and turned to God. Don't just say to each other, we're safe, for we are descendants of Abraham. That means nothing. For I tell you, God can create children of Abraham from these very stones. Now what Paul is showing is, is that Jesus taught this, John the Baptist taught this, it doesn't matter what your ethnicity is. What matters is who you are spiritually. That trumps everything. And so notice this. In Jesus' conversation, we studied John last year. To the Jewish leaders who had believed him, Jesus, or to the Jews who had believed him, Jesus said, if you hold to my teaching, you are really my disciples. Then you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. They answered him, we are Abraham's descendants and have never been slaves of anyone. How can you say that we shall be set free? Jesus replied, very truly I tell you, everyone who sins is a slave to sin. Now a slave has no permanent place in the family, but a son belongs to it forever. So if the son sets you free, you will be free indeed. And here again, he's talking about this. Now follow this story that we just read, if you're following along in the notes. What Paul does in verses 21 through 31 is he says, remember, Abraham had two sons, not just one. So let's talk about this. Which one do you belong to? Ishmael, or sometimes said Yishmael, was born to Hagar. That was the name of Abraham's wife's servant. So Hagar, and she was a slave, if you want to put the word slave in parentheses. And Ishmael was born according to her by the flesh. So he was born to Hagar, who was a slave woman, according to the flesh, by the flesh. You might want to just put there naturally, okay? Just born naturally, humanly, okay? 
Isaac was born to Sarah, S-A-R-A-H, who was Abraham's wife, and she was free. She wasn't a slave. And Isaac was born to Sarah by God's divine promise, his initiative. It was his idea for Isaac to be born, but it was Abraham's idea for Ishmael to be born. Now, I need to explain that, but let me say one more thing before we talk about that. What I hope you'll see in this section is that Abraham's efforts to help, quotation marks, God, lead to conflict. You notice what happens there? He, he says eventually Ishmael persecuted or taunted, mocked Isaac. And then Paul says, it is the same now. Some of us go, okay, wait a second. What does this have to do with anything? What does this have to do with us today? Only everything. 4,000 years ago, Abraham decided to help God out. God had given the promise that he would have a descendant who through that descendant, many nations would be blessed. Abraham decided to take things into his own hands with the help of Sarah, and he sleeps with Hagar. Because in those days, it was customary among some of the cultures that you could actually, if you couldn't have a child on your own, if you were childless, you could actually, you know, have a child through another person, a slave, like they did, her slave. So that's what happens. That child, Ishmael, do you realize who Ishmael is the father of? Which nations in our world today? All the Arab nations. If you've never studied Islam, then you need to know that Islam is based on the fact that they believe they have descended through Ishmael. They believe that when Abraham was called by God to lay his only son on the altar, it wasn't Isaac, it was Ishmael. And they believe that it's through Ishmael, not Isaac. They do not believe that Jesus is the Messiah, they believe he's a prophet. Therefore, there is absolute conflict between Muslims and Jews in the Middle East, big time. It's still going on today. And even more, there is conflict between Muslims and Christians. And sometimes people in the name of Christ have done terrible things to Muslims. And sometimes Muslims in the name of Allah have done terrible things to Christians. But it can all be traced back to Abraham's two sons. Wow. Paul goes, let me just use this as a Bible story. Those two sons were born to two different mothers, two different ways. Which way are you relating to God? He brings all this up. So let me walk through this real quickly. And you can always read this. By the way, it's completely legal to read the Bible outside of this room. Okay? And honestly, this may mean more to you, but I'm just going to, you want to just make notes right now. Let me just walk through it. In Genesis 12, 1 through 4, God comes to a pagan guy named Abram, who eventually he would rename Abraham. And he says to him, look, I know you're 75 years old, but I'm asking you to leave your country with your family and go to a place that I will show you. And the Bible says Abraham trusted God enough to leave. So he goes and he takes his wife, Sarah, who's 10 years younger. They don't have any kids and she's past childbearing age. So this is a fascinating thing, what God says. He says, and I will bless you. In fact, I will not only bless you, I will bless all the nations of the earth through you and your descendants. And Abraham's going, that's interesting. Notice in Genesis 15, he comes back to Abraham. He says, I haven't forgotten what I said to you. You will have a son who is of your own flesh, who will become your heir. 
Your offspring will be so numerous that they'll be like the stars in the sky. And I will give you a land to possess that your descendants will actually inherit and possess. But this won't happen for over 400 years. And he predicts to Abraham that they will go into Egypt and be in slavery, and then he will bring them out. He tells him all this stuff over 400 years beforehand. That's unbelievable. Can you see how God has plans? Genesis 16. So Sarai, who was later renamed by God Sarah, who we just have been talking about, is barren. She's childless. So here's the promise, but there's like no like reality. Like how in the world can we have descendants if we don't have any? So Abraham complains and says, right now my servant is going to be my heir. That doesn't sound like what you told me about born of my own flesh. He says, you know, don't worry about that, but Sarah can't wait. So she takes things in her own hands and she says, sleep with my servant, slave girl, Hagar, and let's have a kid. And Ishmael's born. She says, I'll build my family through her. So Abraham, again, is 86 years old by the time Ishmael is born. And Hagar and Sarah resent each other unbelievably. As soon as Hagar becomes pregnant, she begins to mock and treat Sarah terribly. And Sarah, again, is already humiliated because she can't have children. She says to Abraham, get rid of her and get rid of that kid. And Abraham goes, no, I, don't, I don't necessarily want to do that. But he said, it's up to you. So she sent her away. She mistreated Hagar. And some of you know that God meets Hagar in his mercy and tells her to go back and be with Sarah. That he'll somehow help her. So she goes back with Ishmael, and the story continues. In Genesis 17, God reassures Abraham yet again. He appears to him, and again he says, even though you're 99 years old, I will give you both fruitfulness and a land to possess. He says, I will bless Sarah. I will actually give her a child, and when I give her a child, I want you to name him Isaac, which means in Hebrew, laughter. Now, can I just stop and say something in case church is getting too serious? I love this. God has a sense of humor. In fact, here's how you know when you're relating to God rightly. You'll find yourself laughing at times. You know why? Because you'll go, <laughs> he did that with me? Me? He's willing to do that for me? Oh, my goodness, that's unbelievable. That's not, is that possible? Because Sarah, as soon as she heard this, she started laughing. She's going, I'm an old lady. I'm past child. I mean, how's this going to happen? It's just not possible. I can't do this anymore. But notice in Genesis 18, three visitors come and meet with Abraham. And that when Abraham is 100, about a year from now, Sarah's going to have a child. She's in the tent. She hears that. She laughs. They said, why did you laugh? She says, I didn't laugh. They said, yes, you did. Then they said, is anything too difficult for the Lord? If I promise it, I can do it. And that happens. And so, in Genesis 21, the Lord, I love this phrase, the Lord was gracious to Sarah. That means he didn't treat her based on her own performance. He was gracious because he's gracious. The Lord was gracious to Sarah. The Lord did for Sarah what he had promised. So Sarah became pregnant and bore a son at the exact time God had promised. And once that child was born, about two or three years later after the child had been weaned, one day, Ishmael is mocking and taunting Isaac. And this time, we read the verse that we already read in Galatians. Send the child of the slave woman away. Send her away and send the child away. And Abraham, he's struggling with this, you know, because it kind of tears on him. And God says, go ahead and do what Sarah's saying. 
Because I will not reckon your descendants through Ishmael, I will reckon your descendants through Isaac. But because you've asked me, I will care for Ishmael and I will make him a great nation. And in fact, God kept his promise. But that was an act of mercy because Abraham had taken things into his own hands. Now what this is all getting at, I'm really going to try and bring this home here, is two approaches to God. So if you're following along, here's what Paul says in these verses. Figuratively, these two women, these two different mothers, equal two different covenants, two different testaments, if you want to write that in the parentheses. Some of you know that the Bible is made up of the Old Testament and a New Testament. The word for testament is just another word for covenant or will. Some of you in the old days used to read how will started. This is my last will and testament. Okay? So the Bible says is that God offered one way to relate to him in the Old Testament, and then he superseded it with the coming of Jesus in the New Testament. Let me read what John Stott says. This is helpful. An understanding of the Bible is impossible without an understanding of the two covenants. After all, our Bibles are divided in half into the Old and New Testaments, meaning the Old and New Covenants. A covenant is a solemn agreement between God and men by which he makes them his people and promises to be their God. God established the Old Covenant through Moses and the New Covenant through Christ, whose blood on the cross ratified it. The Old Mosaic Covenant was based on the law, but the New Christian Covenant foreshadowed through Abraham and foretold through Jeremiah is based on, here's the word, promises so glad we sang about some of those promises this morning for people who trust Christ. In the law, God laid the responsibility on men and said, thou shalt and thou shalt not. But in the promise, God keeps the responsibility himself and says, I will, I will do this. And so we see, and some of you know, the Jewish people only believe the Old Testament. They don't believe that Jesus is the Messiah or the New Testament yet. So, but Christians believe in both. We believe that the Old Testament is important because it predicted Jesus coming and it's fulfilled in the New Testament. And so what, what he's saying is, is that all this stuff is really a figurative way of saying that if you want to go back, Galatians, to the Old Testament and you want to somehow perform your way and try and keep all these laws and try and just become Jewish, good luck, but you're living a lot like Abraham did when he and Sarah decided to have Ishmael. You're doing it in your own natural flesh. You're doing it in your own human performance. It's what I do, I do, I do for God. And friends, here's the difference between religion and Christianity. Religion is all about reaching up to God. It's what I do. Look what I do for you, God. Here's my ideas for you. And God says, no, no, here's what I do for you. And I reach down to you. And I invite you into a relationship that I already made possible. That's the difference. Christianity is a relationship. And so, Hagar, if you're following along, was naturally fruitful, humanly fruitful, yet gives birth to slaves. She, by just her humanness, by her own natural, in her own power, she had the ability to bear children. She was naturally fruitful, yet she could only give birth to slaves. Why? Because she was a slave. But Sarah was barren. She couldn't have children. Yet by God's grace, at 90 years old, she gives birth to the heir, H-E-I-R, the Messiah, Christ. The Christ would eventually come from her line, Isaac. Live then, here's what this big idea is, friends. Two approaches to God. Paul is saying, you and I can live according to the flesh in our own human initiative, our own human power, 
our own human ability, what we think's right, by our impulses, or we can live by His Holy Spirit's power, by His Spirit's power. Some of you have read Zechariah 4, 6, where God says, even in the Old Testament, not by human might, not by human power, but by my Spirit, says the Lord of hosts. So let me bring this home. What Paul is saying, if I can use the whiteboard here, is he says, okay, you guys want to talk about your identity. And these Judaizers are talking to you about being a child or a descendant of Abraham. Let's talk about that from the Bible, he says. And for those of you listening on CD or online, what I'm going to do is draw below the name Abraham two different names. First, Ishmael. He says, you know, he had a son named Ishmael. And he also had a son named Isaac. The son Ishmael was born to Hagar, who was a slave. I put that in parentheses under Ishmael. His son named Isaac was born to Sarah, who was Abraham's wife, and she was free. Put that in parentheses under Isaac. Now here's what I want you to see. In this passage, what Paul's saying, here's two ways to relate to God. You can relate to God by human initiative. You know, help God. Or you can relate to God because of God's initiative. Instead of helping God, you join God. There's a huge difference. Try and help God and say, look what I'm doing for you. There's a complete difference between joining God and saying, I'll do that with you like you intended for me to do. I'll join you. And here's what I want you to see today, is that if you decide to live your life and relate to God in this allegory with Ishmael, it will always lead not only to conflict, but I'm writing the word mess under human initiative. But let's say you decide to say, you know what, I've, I've been doing that, I've been trying that. That's crazy business. God moved towards me, and it's because of his gracious initiative, and therefore... Instead of a mess, I will trust God. Instead of a mess, he'll bring the Messiah into my life. You know when, Jesus, when Paul said that Christ may be formed in you, you know what Christ means? Messiah. And when we say Jesus Christ, we mean Jesus Messiah. So you and I can actually experience this. This can happen in our lives. You and I can actually, instead, we can live each day by, instead of trying to say, oh man, how am I doing? How's my scorecard? Oh man, there's a gap I got to make up. I'm halfway there. If I keep trying real hard, God, just take a look at what I'm doing for you. God, look at how I'm helping you out. And every time we live that way, friends, it's not only exhausting, it's highly unsuccessful. Do you realize the Christian life is impossible unless God supernaturally gives you new birth? It's impossible. That's why some of us just need to finally say, I have been trying to do the Christian life by human initiative all these years. What am I doing? God already had in mind to provide a life for me that included giving me by grace, not just forgiveness, 
but adoption and his own Holy Spirit who could now live in me. Oh my goodness. I receive that so that I can join God in what he already initiated. Totally different experience. So how do we apply this? Let me bring this home. How do we live free in God's promise? The first idea here is don't birth an Ishmael. It only gives birth to unfulfillment. Don't birth an Ishmael. It only gives birth to unfulfillment. I can't take credit for this statement. Some of you know Jim and Christy Davis. Josh is going to be our intern, their son this summer, and his girls. And I've just appreciated Jim so much. And when I first moved back here, he was one of the leaders in the church at that time. And as we would consider different plans, as we were trying to figure out where's God leading us? What does he want us to do? What kind of church should we be? We'd be in all these discussions. And I remember that at different times, Jim would say, can we just stop for a moment and let's just pray and ask God so that we don't birth an Ishmael? You know what he's saying? That if we decide to run ahead of God, if we decide to help God, if we decide to do all these things for God, they may even be good. We are going to birth something that naturally is impressive but has no supernatural lasting power. Completely different. That's what we'll give birth to. But if we'll stop and pray and be patient and wait for God to show us and then we'll join him, totally different experience. Totally different outcome. We'll give birth as a church or as a family or as an individual to something totally different. And I'm not saying that people in their natural flesh can't do some pretty impressive things. I'm just saying it won't make any eternal difference. Now notice this second line, though, is that by grace, you and I can step each day into the life God's already provided for us in Christ. That by grace, we can step into the life God's already provided for us by grace. And I know this is the time when you put your notes away, so feel free, go go ahead and do that. But I want to just talk to you about this picture a little bit longer. And here's what I want to tell you. I am so thankful for what I put up here on the whiteboard because it reminds me of something. Abraham did not get this right the first time. God had to teach him this. And what I've discovered in my life is that even after becoming Christian, God has to keep teaching me how not to birth an Ishmael, but to trust in him so that he can birth a Messiah in my life and do something that's way more fruitful. Um, When I was in seminary, I took the long route. I took it over nine years on and off. But the last two years I was in seminary, this wasn't the seminary's fault, but I, I got in a circle of people that were really proud about all of our Bible knowledge. And I had a head start on a lot of people because of the home I grew up in. And all the good things that God had taught me, they now became stuff that I measured myself by and I became proud of. And I remember that I began to look down on chapel speakers that would come. I remember thinking to myself, oh my goodness, and we started hanging out only with some people. And I remember thinking to myself, I couldn't even see it at first, but when God began to help me see just how ugly I was becoming, and I realized I was becoming a Judaizer. I was becoming like those Galatians. See, it was tempting for me because, man, was I proud. Man, did I, was I able to keep score in a way that was right here. It sickened God. So I got done with seminary, and I was exhausted. I mean, I, I, 
took five classes a semester for two school years while I was pastoring a church of 250 people out in Iowa. I, Trish helped me. Well, we were tuckered by the time I got done. In fact, I heard, once heard a guy say, uh, I, I was a Christian hot shot only to wake up and realize I was more shot than hot. And what I realized is that by trying to live by this performance, by trying to say, look at what I'm doing for you, God. Look at how smart I am and stuff like that. Whew, it just created a whole different spirit. Trish will tell you, sometimes I make coffee nervous when I'm living like that. And God said, man, when you try and live by your initiative all the time, when you wake every day and say, I'm going to make up the gap. Look at what I'm doing for you, God. Oh, man, it gives birth to something, but it's not Jesus. And so at the end of that time, I got home, and I just said to God, God, I don't think I'm relating to you rightly. Would you show me? And he allowed me to read some books that over the next four or five years pointed me back to the fact that God is already at work around me. It's not what I'm doing. And that he invites me to join him. And that if I wake up to the fact every day that I'm already a child of promise by his grace, not my own performance, that now I can live differently. Now he'll show me. He doesn't just give one promise in his Messiah. Now all kinds of promises come with him. The promise of his Holy Spirit. The promise of his word being illuminated and explaining. The promise of helping me understand how do I deal with this relationship? How do I deal with this job? What do I do here? And that whole life began to open up and I realized that every day my job was only to wake up and say, I want to live by grace today instead of performance. Show me how to join you. And wherever I'm not joining you, help me to be willing to stop doing that so that I can join you more fully, but teach me this life of grace. And friends, when I started waking up to the fact that God was already doing something and I didn't have to make it happen, I was able to relax. And there was a freedom that began to happen. You know, the Apostle Paul didn't have any children. He was a single guy his whole life. Oh, yes, he did. Because he gave himself to Jesus Christ, friends, he was part of seeing a whole bunch of spiritual children come alive to Jesus and see Christ formed in people. And this letter to Galatians is still helping us learn how to become children of promise. So how are you going to walk out of here today? What are you going to do tomorrow morning? Are you going to wake up where you already feel under it and behind the eight ball? Got to make up the gap? Or are you going to say, I'm done trying to live by human initiative and human ingenuity and human pride. I'm going to give my life in trust to Jesus Christ and watch him by grace fulfill the promise he has over my life. I pray you will. I pray you will. And one of the ways that you and I can walk by grace is to pray often and trust in him constantly so we don't birth an Ishmael. Will you pray with me? Just so you know, there's always people down front after the service if you need to talk with or pray with anyone. We'd be glad to meet with you. Now, Lord, I pray for our church family. I just am so glad that we get to do this together. We don't want to make coffee nervous, God. We want to live in your grace and your freedom. So show us, show us how we can learn this same amazing lesson each day. In your name we pray. Amen. God bless you.